as Emmy, Carol, Ava, and Fluffy and I were driving home from Alabama earlier, well, last week, we came around a particular bend on Route 75, and Carol marveled at the moon. She was huge, <laughs> the moon. <laughs> she had this orange glow, the largest moon maybe we've ever seen. It was beautiful, it was magnificent. And we were kind of marveling at it, and Emmy was in the back taking care of Fluffy and Ava. Carol and I were swapping the driving part of the task. And Emmy got in on it, and we were all looking at the moon. And as we went around that particularly curvy part, we'd get to some places where there were overpasses, and the cement overpasses and the steel buildings would obscure that moon. You couldn't see it, or you could only see part of it. You couldn't see its full glow and its full glory. I got thinking about that. I got thinking about the idea that really the moon is just a reflector. That light was solar, not lunar. And of course, a preacher's mind is always looking for an illustration, no matter what's going on. So I started thinking about what a beautiful illustration that was of the moon reflecting the glory of the sun. And then I got thinking about, oh, it had to be 10 hours earlier when we were leaving Michael and Liz and baby Lonnie. And it was hot and we were waiting for the air conditioning to kick in and we were wiping tears and blowing kisses and saying goodbyes and pulling out their long driveway and getting to the road. They're at the end of a cul-de-sac and we're all doing all that kind of thing and they wouldn't leave the front of the house until we got out of their sight. You know the scene. And the sun was so bright at that time, it was 93 degrees at 10 in the morning there. And I had to put the visor down. And I got thinking about the glory of the sun. God created us in his image to reflect his glory back to him. And I thought of that. Sometimes that glory gets obscured. Certainly man's fall didn't eradicate it. It didn't destroy the image of God. Oh, the image of God is perfect. But it became obscured. It became more like a dirty mirror that doesn't reflect the image back very well. And so man fell into sin and redemption was called for. I wonder how many of, of the other drivers on the road that night were also awed by the sun's glory being reflected being a reflector of God's glory. It seems if I could boil it down in simple terms, I would say every person on earth is either a reflector or a rejecter of the glory of God. They choose not only to recognize it, but to walk in relationship with God in such a way that that glory is not just reflected back to God to give him delight. Because the way he designed it, he designed it that with every person who was born, they would be, they're created in the image of God, that over time there would be millions and millions of reflectors of his glory back to himself, but also to one another. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. God created us to procreate, to proliferate, so those reflections would be multiplied over and over again. 
I got thinking about the two topics we've already had in this series, talking about the nature of man, anthropology, the study of man's nature, his origin, his purpose, his destiny, all those things involved in this study, intertwined with other areas of doctrine. I got thinking about how the enemy, it must thrill our enemy when he sees a young person mutilated because they want to change their gender and renders them incapable of reproducing. I got thinking of how it must thrill our the enemy when a life is taken from the womb. You see, those topics were not just merely polemical. They weren't just the political topics of the day. They're foundational topics about what man will do when he's disconnected from who he is. They would mask rather than mirror the glory of God and try to snuff it out. So even though Genesis 3 records man's fall into sin, which resulted in man being severely limited in his capacity to reflect that glory, the image of God was not obliterated. The image of God remained there. There are so many implications, we'll get there later. In Genesis 5, we already looked at it, but if we were to read it and go on, verse 2, male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. So that image would be passed on. And so after the fall, it's still, we're still yet reminded in verse 2, even in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 5. I didn't read it, but really I should. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In that day that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him. God's word doesn't say that no longer applies because man fell into sin and rendered himself totally Incapable. He is no longer an image bearer because of sin. No, still that foundational truth. Every person is made in the image of God. I don't care how much of a political opposite they are to you. Or how much they offend you by their actions or their ideas. The words they use... Every single person is made in the image of God. And we cannot be disconnected from that truth. God would see his image so poorly uh, reflected as everyone on the earth just thought continually of evil. The world was overtaken with violence and evil. And the scriptures actually say that God chose to obliterate all life on the earth. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It got so bad, we would say, a sin had reached its point to the full, and God said, I will remove them all, and then made the covenant with Noah. And he didn't say, Noah, mankind was so evil and so bad, they are no longer image bearers. He says, Noah, I will make a covenant with you, and you will procreate, replenish the earth. 
fill the earth. And still yet, even though you're from the same seed of Adam, from the same line as all those who were drowned in the deluge, all your offspring, still I affirm to you that man is made in the image of God. That's very, very important. Because when we remove that truth, we can do anything to man. When we remove that truth and say, that child in the womb isn't even a person, then we could somehow snuff out that life without realizing the import of that decision. We can say that person is old and suffering and has dementia and the kindest thing to do would be to take their life if we get disconnected from this truth. When we say what is man, it is a person. What is humankind? It is a person who is created in the image of God. And I haven't found anyone who isn't. So two essential truths are now set before us tonight to consider in what time we have. The first is this. God created man in his own image, giving man identity, dignity, and destiny, and making every person an image bearer. Because of this, we can say everyone is beautiful. Because they bear the image of God. Severely handicapped, beautiful. Old and losing their faculties, beautiful. Whatever the situation may be, there is beauty in every person. And to recognize that because they bear the image of God, even the person we would call most wicked and most evil, I'm not soft crime here. I'm not saying some terrible person committing all kinds of crimes and murder and clobbering that person in New York City, I think it was, and causing them to be in a coma. He's beautiful. No, that's not what I'm saying. But to remember that every single person still yet bears the image of God to some degree. Our second truth is man chose to reject rather than to reflect God's glory. And every person from Adam on has been a sinner by birth and by choice, severely limiting his or her ability to reflect that image. So much so that he can be completely base, completely beastly in his behavior. And so we can look at man at the same time. We have two, in a way, they're... Opposing truths. Man is beautiful and created in the image of God. And man is desperately wicked. His heart is desperately wicked. Deceitful above all things. Who could know it? And in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. We can go down the Romans road and we can just start taking those verses one after another. There is none righteous. No, not one. There's none that seeketh after God. There's none that doeth good. We can just keep going through. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we can look at the depravity of mankind and the depths that it goes to and say, beastly. We can say like in Second Peter and in the book of Jude that those who were the enemies of God, were as brute beasts. Not that they were, but they were as brute beasts in their behavior. And so we have to take those two realities, those two truths, and recognize that they're both part of 
what humanity is. Blaise Pascal, the 17th century mathematician, philosopher, theologian, and 14 other things, in his pensée, the thoughts, the fragments that were recorded, he said this, It is dangerous to show a man too clearly how much he resembles the beast, without at the same time showing him his greatness. It is also dangerous to allow him too clear vision of his greatness, without his baseness. It is even more dangerous to leave him in ignorance of both. Think about that. If you take a man and you just say, you're created in the image of God, and, and you, you only emphasize that side without the other, that's a dangerous thing to do. Because that person will not see their need of redemption. They've already... You know, anything they do is okay. But it's dangerous on the other side just to point to man's sinful nature and his depravity. It's kind of like that also, in a sense, when you have a ministry and you're preaching from the pulpit and there will be times where you preach to those attributes of even the people in the church that are positive and good and beautiful and reflective of God's glory. And there would be other times where you have to preach to sin in the camp. You have to be balanced in both of those, also in our understanding of who man is. And it's even more dangerous for a man not to see either one of them. Because then he doesn't see his need of redemption nor does he see the availability of redemption. And so the talk of the cross is foolishness to such a person. Many a philosophy exists where one of those two pieces is missing. And so it's distorted truth. And now let's look a little more closely at some of the passages we're considering tonight. I have several questions here. I didn't alliterate this time. The other pastors don't have to make fun of me with all my alliterations. I just have some questions for us to consider. The first, what does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? I thought God questions had some good information to kind of prime the pump and share ideas. Anytime we create, we do this, we do that. We're showing uh, the image of God in us and lots of great things, but... That question has caused much ink to be spilt. That question has caused many books, volumes of philosophy and theology to be written over the, over the centuries. There have been three kind of predominant strains of theology. I hope I'm not getting too deep, but this is the, uh, you know, we are studying systematic theology. And so there are these three different main views, and they all focus on one aspect of it. And like anything, when you have man's system of philosophy and theology and recorded, uh, recorded down and written and much written about it, this group feels they have the corner of the market and this one they do and the others they do and that type of thing. I think it goes beyond any one of them. Many abstract and abstruse Musings about these things have been recorded. The substantive position are the theologians and philosophers that posit that its particular qualities 
of the nature of man, like his mental and moral attributes. And in this sense, that's what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. Then there's the relational position. And you kind of saw in that video, they showed the three, that little explanation. The relational position, these posit that man's social and interpersonal relationships and the capacities for them are what really reflect God's image. And then the functional position, these posit that what man does have dominion over the earth. That's what really shows the Imago Dei. Rather than going to all of that, and we could spend hours and hours, and I would be out of my depths very quickly if I even tried to do that tonight, let's go right to the scriptures and take this thought, and we'll see that it encompasses not only those three great areas of theology to try to tackle the great question of what is man and what does it mean that he's created in God's image and go right to the text in Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image. Tselem. I know Pastor Walker would know the correct pronunciation of the Hebrew. And after our likeness, demuth. See, the one speaks of representation The other speaks of resemblance. The first image is a representative figure. We could think of it in human terms. Some great monarch would have his image all over his kingdom. That people would see that as an image of him. You can see in false religions. You can see in idolatry all throughout the centuries. Images of a god were considered important. So much so that people would bow down to them. Moses is up on the mountain too long. Let us make an image of a God that we could bow down to and worship. God doesn't want a statue, a painting, a flag, because we are his image bearers. Anytime we see another person, we see the image of God in different capacities. So in one sense, when we say, when God said, let us make man in our own image, he was saying, I want to create an image of myself. Not complete, not fully. Obviously, we're not talking about the physicality of man. Although uh, the complexity of our physical design certainly causes us to say, I I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Our bodies and the way they are designed certainly do give glory to God. But God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But every person is an image bearer. They're a flag. They're a standard. They're a statue, so to speak. An image bearer of God. But not just a representative figure, but also a resemblance, likeness, something that is similar, but not identical to something else. And so if we're going to try to answer this question, what is man? Man is people created in the image and likeness of God. Men, humanity, people on earth to fill this earth and populate this earth to proliferate. Our 
one after another after another. Millions and millions and millions of representatives of God here on earth. Those who were made not only to be here on earth, but to spend eternity with him. But not just representatives of him, but reflectors of his attributes. To the Hebrew reader, at least the scholars that I've been studying tell me this, this would have been very clear. Man reflects God's glory back to him in every way that he represents God, being God's image on earth, and in every way that he is similar but not identical to God. And so every time man exercises dominion, creates a musical masterpiece, or a paints a masterpiece, or thinks, or administers, or emotes, loves, shows compassion in all of those different capacities. So it's not just the substantive over here or the relational over here or the functional over here. No one really has a corner on the market to say, well, to be created in the image of God means precisely and narrowly this. No, in every way that we represent God and in every way that we resemble God We're defining, we're fleshing out that definition of what it means to be man and what it means to be man created in the image of God. Adam begot Seth after his own likeness and image. We certainly understand this idea with our children and grandchildren, do we not? I just came back from the trip to see grandbaby for the first time, baby Lonnie. Pastor now knows, welcome to the club, it's a great thing, isn't it? We got there, and you know what we did. Oh, look, she looks just like Michael. And Liz was like, yeah, she does. <laughs> My daughter-in-law, right? We're looking at all the different attributes. Of course, we were looking at the physical. The nose and the face and the this and the that. Oh, that looks just like Michael. I remember bringing them or really sending them a picture of when my dad came over from Italy. And there's an old picture I have that I love. And... He was about 12 years old. And I had a picture of Michael at that exact same age. And I shot the picture over to Michael and Liz. And they were wowed by the fact that how my dad, way back then in the 1950s when he came over from Italy, looked just like Michael looked at that age. I mean, looking at the resemblance, it's beautiful. And then while we were there in Alabama, I've just got too many Alabama illustrations tonight, but I'm going to keep going because whether they connect or not, I'm enjoying all the memories. I was watching Michael play with his niece, Carol's daughter, Ava, and the way he was playing with her was exactly the way I play with children. It was like watching myself. He was doing all the little silly games. I'm good with the little ones in that sense. Could kind of get them laughing and doing this and that. I had so many friends in the preschool and kindergarten last year. And then you went up to the upper grades. Never mind all of that. Now, I'm joking. I love them all. But, you know, that kind of connection. And I was watching Michael and the little games he was playing with Ava, the pretending not to hear her. And she said one word and he said 15 words that rhymed with it. Uh, and she would get playfully frustrated. No, no, not not log dog. You know, that kind of thing. And then she would try to get him to look and he would pretend not to see. I was sitting there watching myself. And, you know, as a dad seeing your adult son doing the stuff you do, it was pretty neat. I have to say, I felt pretty good inside. It was cool. 
And I thought maybe in some tiny way, because of course in the back of my mind I was thinking about this topic, maybe in a tiny little way that reflects how God feels when he sees his children, his creations, reflecting his glory back to him in the way they represent him here on earth. We are ambassadors of Christ. And in the way they resemble him on earth. I'm speaking to the redeemed. I imagine tonight, oh, to embrace this understanding of man for ourselves and to desire to reflect that back. Well, we've considered, but certainly have not exhausted the question of what it means to be created in the image of God. Now let's look at another question. We've already teased this question, but I think we really need to nail it down. Can man still be considered an image bearer of God after falling into sin? I think we need to consider this a little bit more, meditate on this, chew on this, and get to the point where we can answer it emphatically and scripturally and understand that because it will be challenged. I've said some of these verses. I could say more of them as I go through. There is none righteous. There is none that seeketh after God. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. I know that in my flesh dwells no good thing, etc., etc. And every one of those is absolute truth. And the way man lives and behaves and acts gives evidence to the fact that man is a complete Rotten sinner, to speak a little colloquially for a minute. How could any murderer, how could any atheist possibly reflect glory back to God? How could anyone like that, how could an abortionist be considered an image bearer of God? How could a gossiper or a slanderer? See, I don't think when I said abortionist or murderer... I got it near anybody's toes here. But how about a gossip? How could anybody who goes around and gossips about other people who are also created in the image of God and behave that way be considered an image bearer? They're not a representative of God. They're a representative of Satan. You think about that. You see, it's very important that we get this answer right and that we know it from the scriptures. And it's nailed down, not just mentally, not just as an intellectual certainty, but rooted in our being. Because it will dictate how we deal with people. A slumlord, we spoke about that this morning in our small group. Sex trafficker, a cartel member, a racist, I mean a real racist. When I think about some of these things as so disgusting and despicable, a thief or a thug out there looting and rioting in the name of some cause they're not even really connected to, an LBGQT++, this or that, whatever you might name that is repugnant to you. And maybe it's repugnant because... It's so contrary to the word of God. How could someone who fits into that category of someone you would think the worst of possibly be an image bearer? 
possibly be created in the image of God. And yet, the scriptures says they are. It's very important that we know that in how we might deal with such a person. The question is, can man still be like God in any way and bear the image of God in any capacity in his fallen, wicked, sinful state? And it may shock our soul tonight, but the answer is absolutely yes. Yes, he can. Weren't his image-bearing qualities and capacities completely lost and forfeited in the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned? No, it was not. And that's why it's recorded numerous times in the Old Testament, and it's affirmed again in the book of James chapter 3 in the New Testament that man was created in the image of God. James states it this way, With our tongue we bless God and curse people who are made in the likeness or similitude of God. Man's dignity as an image bearer is not lost, however poorly he reflects it. And if we have that in mind, it will shape how we answer them on a Facebook post. It will shape how we speak to them, and how we speak about them. Even someone involved in something we find absolutely repugnant. Any excuse we might make to say that person doesn't deserve one ounce of dignity, that excuse is totally removed because of the Word of God. And that's what we have to see. How will we reach a lost and dying world that's becoming more and more antithetical in every way uh, they act and think about God? It's when God's people say, no matter how much indignity they treat us with, we will find a way to engage in the conversation, to present truth, but to do it in a way that's respectful and dignified and recognizes that no matter how many piercings they have, no matter how many different colors the hair may be, if that kind of thing even bothers you, or whatever the thing about their appearance or their speech or how many colorful words they use, that's not French, sir. Don't say, excuse my French, or whatever they might say or in the way they act, Yet, we still must treat them with a dignity that God's word demands because we know what man is. I'll move to our next question. What are the implications and applications of this understanding? There's a little bit of overlap because I've run ahead of myself, but let me give a few in our few minutes that are remaining Number one, implication and application, they kind of go together here. We alone are created in the image of God. This is not said of the moon, of the stars, of the galaxies, of other amazing parts of creation. We saw all these images before us, but they led up in that opening video that we saw all those magnificent images of the sea swarming with life and mountains and rivers and all those things. We saw the beauties of God's creation, and yet in none of them did God say, let us make mountains in our own image. Let us make the great whale in our own image. Let us make nothing but people. And so when we recognize that, for us, 
personally, that's where our sense of dignity is. If we're looking for dignity, I demand respect from you. You don't respect my culture. You don't respect this. You don't respect that. You are dis- And we demand that so that we can not have our dignity assaulted. Your dignity can never be assaulted. Because your dignity is rooted in your creation. Your dignity is rooted in the fact that you are created in the image of God. And so you don't have to be drawn in to hostile exchanges, even when that person appears to be assaulting your dignity based on his skin color or a level of education or your, the size of your bank account or the degree of your debt or whatever it may be. And someone looks for that weak spot to attack you on, to bring you down. I had a very unpleasant anonymous email sent to me, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, and they just went to town toward me. It was really rude. I was on my way to see my son and daughter-in-law. I put that thing away and didn't give it a thought. Amen? Because my dignity is not rooted in what some coward might try to say. When I know who I am, and I forget a lot. Don't we all forget that a lot? And so someone can get under our skin. Someone can find our insecurity and start at it. But when we remember where our dignity is rooted, we could overcome that. No wonder the enemy would attack creation. No wonder there would have to be a replacement faith system. That faith system must be assaulted and attacked. We can't have a faith system based on the fact that God created man on the sixth day of creation and created him in his image and likeness and gave him dignity. Remove that. Change it with another faith system, but call it science. Tell them that man evolved from lower animals and the world came from an explosion and etc., etc., That's one of the reasons why that's attacked. And if you were to take Darwinian teaching or you would take Freudian psychology and take those teachings, they attack that. They try to remove that. You're nothing more than an animal, a rational animal, but an animal. So often in scientific literature, speaking of people, man is a rational animal. Sometimes they'll even try to take your Bible and say, you see, man and the animals or made on the same day of creation. That won't give me pause. Because those animals created in the earlier part of day six of creation were not created in his image and likeness, but you and I were. Praise God and give him glory. Number two, because of man's inherent and inalienable dignity, even if man himself filthies himself up so much that his reflector isn't reflecting at all, We have no right to take life. Implication number one is that my dignity is rooted in being created in the image of God. Number two, I understand that we have no right to take life. There are only two exceptions. I find self-defense and capital punishment. Capital punishment is given as a right to a government, not to an individual. We don't need to talk about that tonight. 
Self-defense is only allowed because the image of man that is about to be killed, the person, is, the image bearer who is about to be killed has a right to defend his own life, even if it means the death of the other. They're the only you'll ever find in the scriptures. You don't find anything else. And so if I'm going to have a, a mindset of euthanasia or anything else like that, I'm going to have to get away from scriptural truth to do it. I'm going to have to attack scriptural truth to justify it. What does all of this mean? Because life is sacred and we're created in his image. No murder, no suicide, no abortion, no euthanasia. No one is too young, no one is too old to deserve to be protected at all costs from having their life taken away from them. Implication and application number three. We've already spoken about it, but let's go further. Because every person is made in the image and likeness of God, we must treat every person and speak to every person according to that dignity. Please, we have three, four minutes left. Would you let that one sink in? Because I don't think you were thinking about going and murdering someone. But this one is important. Yeah, but they cut me off in traffic. And then acted like it was my fault. And then what they said to me, I had a right to answer them back. Oh, no, you didn't. I was driving the big old van with all the youth in it out in American Samoa, and someone pulled out of that shopping center called Laofo, and they cut me off something bad, and I had the right of way, and they cursed me out in front of all of the youth. And I knew, I, I could see some of them in the mirror, but their eyes were big. And I rolled down my window, and I said, God bless you! And we laughed in the van for the rest of the way. I had a right not to say something else. You know what this means? The implications of this is no angry tirades with colorful language. Oh, there's a time where you have to raise your voice and straighten a child out. There's a time where you have to confront sin. There's a time that you have to confront an injustice. And in doing so, you sometimes need to speak very directively and very firmly. I'm not talking about... No, I'm not talking about that at all. There is a time to get up in the pulpit and preach something and to be very direct and very clear and maybe raise your voice a little bit. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just having an angry tirade, something isn't going your way, or that you are dealing with something. You see, we're to be firm, but affirmative. And we never have an excuse, but you don't understand all the junk that he did to me. No, I don't. I wasn't there. I don't know all that stuff. But I know that God's word says that every person is created in his image. Every person is an image bearer. And if you saw somebody take the American flag and throw it on the ground and stomp on it and burn on it and throw rubbish on it, you would say, how could they do that to the American flag? Don't they know what that represents? Don't they know the people who died for that, who gave their lives for that? Don't they... And yet we will take God's image bearer 
and spit on it and yell at it and curse it. James chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude or the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessings and cursings. Brothers, these things ought not to be so. James says to the believers, don't you know that that tongue can't be blessing God and cursing people? They're made in the image of God. You have no right, husband and wife, no matter how upset you are, to just flip out and start yelling and maybe even losing some of your church vocabulary and replacing it with that other vocabulary. You have no right to do that. And you can't even go back afterwards and say, yeah, but you did this, 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 and this, and you provoked me to that. You are accountable to God. Every idle word that comes out of our mouth will give account of. And so say, oh, Lord, help me to treat people at all times with the respect and dignity demanded of the image of God of the representation, because in so much that I do that to them, I'm doing that to you. And I close with this, because we are made in the image and likeness of God, the fourth implication of this truth, and application of it at the same time, we get to reflect God wherever we go. We get to reflect his glory back to him. We get to sing and praise and worship and reflect his glory in our conversations, in our conduct, in our interactions, in our appointments, in everything that we do. That's an honor and a privilege of the highest order. And so go, church, go create, make, administer, philosophize, be compassionate, love, lead, Do all the things that God created you to do because in so doing, you're reflecting his glory back to him. And you're reflecting glory out to others. Exercise your reason. Figure things out. Use language to communicate. Words to communicate ideas with other people, with nuances. Make your plans and build things. Imagine possibilities. Envision the future. And in all of those things, You're giving glory back to God. You're reflecting. And if your reflector gets dirty, call out to him. Cleanse me. Cleanse me. And here's the great thing. You know, a lost person, they haven't been redeemed. They're limited and severely compromised in the ways in which they might reflect the glory of God. But believer... Not so with you. For when you received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and he came to dwell in you in the person of the Holy Spirit, and he's in you, you have the fullness of his resources. You can yield your tongue to him. You can gain wisdom from him. You can turn to his word. You can allow God who is in you to work through you to reflect his glory in absolute perfection. 
you can have the most fitting word. You can yield to an idea that honors and glorifies God. We are the redeemed. I'm going to pray to close, and then I know we have at least one announcement to follow. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for reminding me of the source of my identity and dignity. Thank you for creating us after your image and in your likeness. Help us to walk out of here tonight with a firmer understanding and a deeper devotion to that great truth. I pray in the name of your Son, our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.